0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: Hey, Jonathan. Hey, Paul. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. We. I
2: listen to a lot of podcasts and I I somehow came across yours about a year ago and I've just been um I've just been on a tear listening to everything you, you're talking about and it, it resonates with me pretty deeply. A couple of years ago I kinda got on a uh, on a journey with some folks like Greg Boyd reading some of his books mm-hmm. and um yeah. uh listening to Brian Zond. I don't know, you know, he's a Missouri fellow. I'm sure you're aware of him and uh-huh. Anyway, it seems like a lot of a lot of uh, things I'm listening to are, are pushing me into a, a, a different understanding of just an idea of what God's character is like, I think.
1: Yeah. Oh, great.
2: Other than that, from a you know, non-church standpoint, I'm a practicing anesthesiologist. I've been doing medicine my whole life, and uh, I live in a in a small town uh, in northwest Georgia. Okay. I work at about a... 250-bed hospital. I've been there
1: for about 20 years. Okay. And to, this is Matt. Tell him well, about yourself, Matt. My name is Matt,
3: and I'm from the planet qr 7 z 9 And, no, I'm just kidding. Um, my I don't name know is, where
1: that's coming from.
3: <laughs> Brent, Brent, were you in class the other night? Yes, I was. Okay, good to see you. And then John, Jonathan, you go by Jonathan? Jonathan, yeah. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you guys. Yeah. So my name is Matt. Um, I live now. I just moved down here to uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, just outside of Myrtle Beach from Indianapolis. I'm originally from Pittsburgh, PA. I work right now as a hospice chaplain. I've known Paul since about 2007. He's been my teacher since then. I'm Orthodox Christian and uh, have a wide sort of range of interests and have, have been spending a lot of time over the last... I guess it's been like a year and a half now reading through Origin of Alexandria because my favorite theologian. What am I leaving out, Paul?
1: He's a wonderful guy, Matt is. Uh, yeah, Matt was one of my early students. Uh, when I, I was in Japan for 20 years and I came back to the States and I was teaching in a Bible college here and Matt was one of the early students and was my TA for a couple of years. Yeah. And, and then... Uh, I was here second ta ever yeah yes yes so,
3: i followed in the footsteps of a giant so it was always very intimidating
1: the guy that preceded matt is now the uh, editor-in-chief at fortress press so
3: one of the smartest guys i've ever known
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad through through a, i don't know
3: if you guys know about how forging plowshares came to be but it's it's got a pretty cool story. I'm glad I, you know it was a, it was a hard thing, but I'm kind of glad you know that it happened because we wouldn't be able to meet like this and talk like this if it hadn't. So I we're able to meet new people from all over. What are you, where are you guys? Where are you guys at?
2: I'm from uh, Northwest Georgia near Rome, Georgia. Okay. Um, from uh, I was telling Paul earlier, I've, I've been a Seventh Day Adventist Christian my whole life. And have been involved in you know local church type of ministries, but but uh, I'm a practicing anesthesiologist, and that's that's what I've done my whole life for a profession. So,
3: oh wow! I was just reading about DMT before we got on this. call. is that re- is that related at all uh, about the machine elves and whatever? Uh, I have I read about all kind of weird stuff. But um, how did you find forging plowshares?
2: I was uh, telling Paul, I I don't remember exactly how it popped up on uh kind of my podcast feed I think is is how I found it and uh listened to some talk about a year ago I, I, I it might have been one of y'all's discussions even and just got fascinated by the you know by the direction you know how we're going it kind of fit in with a lot of reading I've been doing lately and and uh some thoughts I've been having about God's character and the nonviolent aspect of of you know God's character and how that seems to be pretty misrepresented in a lot of Christian teaching and thought I've just sort of been a I guess I've been lurking in forging plowshares for about the last year and decided it was time to introduce myself and see <laughs> see what this was about a little bit deeper
3: it's good to meet you man I'm glad you're here Brian where are you, you. background
4: I'm from Southern Iowa um, I farm currently I went to college for a while I come from outside the church though yeah just something over the past few years three four years been taken more seriously Found Paul through a podcast appearance he made that resonated with me. His appearance then, and listened to a lot of your guys' work and the nonviolence. The so I kind of came to it through the Girardian aspect of it, it was a big was a big uh, wasn't the only thing, but it was a big big key for me in in coming to the gospel. So Gonorsky, right, David Gornorski? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've
1: done a couple of interviews with him. Yes, yeah, always always have fun okay. with him.
4: Yeah, it's an interesting, that was a big part of coming to the gospel too, it just his work. Oh, really? Great. Yeah. Great. We got to do some more with that,
3: man, because so many people, for some reason, Gerard, like that was like one of the most listened to podcasts and then people read, like people must really dig Rene Gerard, I guess, because that's how a lot of people seem to discover uh, what Paul's
4: doing. I've tried reading his books and I haven't gotten as much out of his books as I've had with Paul and and other people talking about his work and his application. But, yeah, yeah the that's, escape that's, mechanism, I, I've seen it, you know, in real life. So It is that's everywhere.
1: Right. Yeah, once you that's see right. it, you can't unsee it. Exactly. That's, that's right. What
4: am I scary favorites. when you first see it, too.
1: Yeah.
3: One of my favorite things about Paul is that he can kind of uh, do all the hard work of, like, reading, you know, some of this stuff and then just kind of explaining it so I don't have to – pour through, like, thousands of pages of something
1: like Doc Barry, though. Yeah. There you go. I hope I'm doing my job, though. <laughs> Tonight, Brent has heard this, but what I might do is just give you an introduction to my understanding of the role of Ephesians. The thing with Ephesians is that those of us who went through a standard... Bible college education and seminary education, what we are taught by Ephesians, I'm about to deny all that. I'm going to say that, that the standard approach, the, the approach that we typically get due to a kind of higher critical understanding is that Ephesians, and even, even those who are very conservative, may put Ephesians as a kind of secondary book of Paul's theology. But what I'm going to claim, and I'm not alone in this, This is I'm actually going to appeal to the early church. The significant contemporary scholar who agrees with this is a man named Douglas Campbell. Campbell is quite impressive. He's at Duke University and has written, and he's written a book framing Paul. The way that higher criticism works, or, or just the way that New Testament scholarship tends to work, is people read a book and then, you know, they read the New Testament and they think, okay, well, here's Paul's theology. And then according to that theology, they kind of, you know, arrange the books accordingly. And what has happened in the, the case of Paul is that the notion of justification by faith through a kind of Lutheran understanding has played a key role in the dating of paul's works and not just the dating and all of that but also then uh, romans and galatians are given primacy due to that kind of approach which campbell points out it's a very circular approach you know how why do you date it this way well because we know presumably that you know this particular doctrine But, of course, this way of arranging our understanding of Paul only comes with the rise of historical criticism or higher criticism. It's a way of of studying and reading the Bible, people across the board. In other words, it's not that any particular group do it. It would be from fundamentalists to liberals that that, that they all partake of this understanding. Part of what's happening in the class is that the the interpretive method or our way of reading the Bible, what's going to be demonstrated in the case of Ephesians is we're, we're going back to an understanding that I would say it's either a return to or a passage beyond a historical critical or, you know, historical criticism. So what that means, I don't know if that rings any bells with you, but... You know, when I, when I was in Bible college, I went to a little fundamentalist Bible college. Okay, how do you know what what's happening in this book? Well, you find out the author and the date, and then you find out the purpose of his writing, and then, you know, what is the intent of the author. The tendency is to, to treat the book in terms of an isolated unit, you know, historical, critical, the idea that, that to get back to the history and the situation— is the key, and that in some way we have to place ourselves at that time and in that framework. Do I'm not saying that that process isn't important, but I think it's incomplete, and ultimately if we're dependent simply on arriving at that sort of historical situatedness of the book, they Study will never come to an end. You know, this is what has happened, kind of the crisis, you know, the search for the historical Jesus, and that, that we hear about kind of a liberal understanding, but it's also a kind of crisis in a fundamentalist understanding, in that we we can never arrive at that his, that historical situatedness, and we kind of lose the text itself. In other words, we're always trying to get behind the text in some way. Once we check out of that system and look at Ephesians, I'm saying that Ephesians should be treated as a lens for understanding the theology of the Apostle Paul, and that it really is not Luther's notion of justification, it's not really a Reformed understanding. And this idea agrees with the early church. If you go back to Origen, he says Ephesians is the center of Paul's thought, that it's the heart of his letter. Uh, Ephesians, we have a semi-commentary from Origen. We really don't have the commentary he wrote, but Jerome seems to have picked up Origen's commentary. The uh, point with Ephesians um, you know, we're, we're going to say it's primary, and this is not anything new. The Ignatius, Polycarp, Clement of Rome, Hermas, other apostolic fathers are going to treat Ephesians in a similar fashion. And even in the modern period, somebody like F.F. F. Bruce described the letter. He says it's the quintessence of Paulinism, and C.H. Dodd calls it the crown of Paulinism. What we're doing in the class is it's a minority opinion at this point. That is, very few would agree with this focus on Ephesians. And and of course, part of the thing that is happening is the theology of Ephesians, not because it, it disagrees with the other books or anything like that, but with a Lutheran or a Protestant reading of Paul focused on justification you know in the Lutheran fashion or the Calvinist fashion you get a, a centering of Paul that is going to leave out what I think is thematic and that is the cosmic picture of salvation that is just so evident in Ephesians you know that's the way the the first few sentences of the book go from you know verse 3 to verse 14 is actually one sentence and in that verse, he really spells out what I think is Paul's gospel. And part of this, I don't know if this, how much this resonates with you, a part of this understanding of a cosmic orientation, I think also ties into an understanding of Christus Victor. Which, by the way, a Girardian understanding would would sort of fit with a Christus Victor. Uh, the the notion that what Christ is doing in the work of the atonement in his, his, the you know his work actually at least part of it is the defeat of evil. You know, Christus Victor. You there are some crude portrayals of it in the early church. Unfortunately, they're trying to illustrate for maybe common people what it is. So they'll talk uh, uh, in a kind of crude fashion about defeating the devil or tricking the devil or something like that. But actually, I think Christus Victor rightly understood, or at least a, a version of Christus Victor, is the atonement theory that is predominant in the New Testament. With that, I'm not saying that's all that the work of Christ is doing, but part of this understanding of a cosmic, redemption is the overcoming the defeat of the principalities and powers and that language already should be resonating you know in ephesians he'll talk about the the prince of the power of the air you know the chapter 6 is talking about defeating the devil but this is not a a battle that takes place someplace else as paul is describing it and i do think it's paul is describing it It is a real world engagement with evil, a real overcoming with sin, death, and the devil. If you've listened to to some of my stuff, that part of this is the way that you define sin. You know, we've kind of trivialized sin, but I think that a, a correct understanding, and this is also there in Ephesians, is that sin, and I think this is just key to Paul's understanding, sin is an orientation to death. You know, you can say this in another way, sin is also... A misorientation to the law. And so the picture is that death enslaves us. And of course, the power of the devil, however, you might think of the devil, whether you think of a personified devil or, or either way, the picture in the New Testament is that the way in which evil controls us is in and through our fear of death or our captivity or our orientation to death. That in much Protestant understanding that's not what people are thinking of when they think of the atonement they're thinking of penal substitution we, and this is part of the problem is that I think that in Ephesians were encountering a, a different atonement theory that you know with the Reformation it's not just the Reformation but you know go, actually going back to uh, Anselm of Canterbury the doctrine of di- divine satisfaction but then particularly with John Calvin Calvin's understanding of penal substitution to, to say that penal substitution was invented by John Calvin people would find that offensive but at least there the, the understanding of penal substitution that we many Protestants have today comes directly from John Calvin and so I think that we can say that John Calvin has invented the doctrine of penal substitution as we know it. Now, the doctrine has a history, you know, through divine satisfaction, and so there there is a background to that, but Calvin is innovating, really, and he says as much on it. I guess that most all of us here are coming at the New Testament from a, I don't know if you can escape this understanding, uh, a kind of reformer, the reformed understanding that would take Ephesians as a secondary input of uh, Galatians. This is N.T. Wright, and I read this quote last time. He says, if the Reformers had taken Ephesians rather than Galatians and Romans as their main text, the entire course of Western history might have been different. In Ephesians 1.10, Paul some, says something which many Western Christians have never grasped, that the whole point of what God was doing was to sum up everything in heaven and on earth in the Messiah in Christ. The coming together of everything in heaven and earth, that's temple theology. The temple is now replaced by the living human, in whom the living God and the living human being are one and the same. As a result of God's determination to bring together heaven and earth in one reality, The life of those humans who find themselves caught up in this purpose is not only radically changed, but directed outwards. This is already connected to this verse, is a different doctrine of atonement. And Matt can run down what doctrine, or any of you, but I know Matt knows, what doctrine of atonement does this sound like?
3: Are are you talking about
1: apokatastasis? I think both apocatastasis and recapitulation. Yeah, Irenaeus is going to find recapitulation in the Ephesians one ten. I mean, think about how um, sort of,
3: I don't know, just they're so different, you know? So, like, on the one hand, you have the penal substitution, which, without trying to create, like, too much of a caricature, is basically, like, the son dies to turn away the wrath of the Father. Is that like a pretty good fair summation? Like that's pretty much the thing is that like God the Father is super, super angry with us, and you know, because we've sinned and rightfully so, you know, but the Son comes and He dies and He turns away the Father's wrath and so something like whenever God looks at us, He sees Jesus. He really doesn't see us, but He sees Jesus. I think that that's kind of fair without being too crude.
1: But think about sure. the return no, I was just
2: saying, yeah, that's I think that's nailed
1: it. And part of, you know, part of what Matt's saying here, this is where we get uh imputed righteousness. We get a kind of legal, in other words, the atonement is focused on law or, you know, what is sin? Well, sin is a breaking of the law. What is salvation? It's making us right in regards to the law. That's where you get penal substitution.
3: Yeah, and so you have that on the one hand. So that's a
1: whole vision
3: of christianity right there right like that's a whole way to do this this thing you know I would say that's that's really what the gospel is is that god was mad and angry and he had a right to be because you had sinned and you did all these bad things and so someone needed to step in and turn away you know his wrath and jesus solved that problem now i think there's like at least a little bit of truth in there somewhere but they make that kind of like the big thing right but i think that what paul you're describing is. Something so much more glorious, I guess, would be the first word that comes to mind than that, because what you're describing is the recapitulation. With that that big word, it, to me, whenever I hear that, I just think it's like changing, changing everything up, you know, or fixing things, or uh, or, or fixing everything, or changing everything. Or that's why the other word, apokatastasis, uh, which is just restoration. So the phrase in Acts three is apokatastasis ton pentone or ton Pantone, whatever, uh, but it's the restoration of all things. So even if you want to go with what you've been saying, like is your version of universal, which I'm okay with, it's just so much uh, sort of a higher view, because what you're saying is, is that it's not that God had the problem, which is what we usually do, right? In Christianity, we say God had the problem. He was really, well, so did we, because we were going to die and everything, but God had this, he was very angry and that problem needed to be solved. Whereas, like, what I hear you saying is, is, no, actually the problem is that mankind has been fractured, you know, and mankind has been sort of alienated from the life of God. And death is the contagion, you know, that spreads and manifests itself in sin. And that's a problem that mankind has. And so what the cross is addressing is not a problem within, like, the being or the mind of God which we could call anger or wrath or whatever, but that it's addressing the problem of sin and death and, you know, evil and uh, sort of nothingness with human beings. And the resolution of that problem is not for a virgin to, you know, be thrown into a volcano or whatever, be, you know, crucified. But yeah, payment uh, is not, that's not the, the resolution, but the resolution is to be found in the restoration of our unity With God, our unity with God, and to me that sounds better. It sounds it sounds more interesting. You know, it sounds uh, worthy of the glory of Christ or or whatever. It seems like it has so many more implications. It's almost like with the former view, you can kind of button it up pretty nice and say, "Well, that's about it." You know, there was that problem and it got solved. But with what you're describing, there is almost like a potential for like an infinite sort of outworking or unfolding of that, you know, process of apocatostasis or recapitulation. Maybe it takes time, maybe it sort of unfolds, maybe it becomes more and more glorious and full and, and infinite and eternal. Uh, so to me, it just, the bottom line is just seems like a lot higher, cooler.
1: And the uh, and the, the thing that is different, when we, you know, Paul is talking about the, the word recapitulation, it sums up, is the same word uh, I think uh, uh, apokatastasis is just the Greek word from Acts, but it's actually uh, reconcile. It's a ver- it's almost a synonym with the idea of summing up. So it's it, the word that Irenaeus is using for recapitulation is this word that he gets from Ephesians, but it's not just Ephesians. But but he takes that word and gives us an entire you know the thing that the early church fathers did i think the new testament does that we've kind of lost that matt has just described there is a a, a, an entire economy described in this
3: like that's when i hear the word capitulate and correct me i could be wrong here But I think of the word almost like change because, you know, you can, like, let's say if you're telling a story and you capitulate, it's like you, you know, you're, you're, like, changing. You're, 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 and so, like, recapitulate, I guess, would to be, you know, sort of um, in some way changing things, but but the change doesn't need to happen with God. That's like, almost like the blasphemous sort of um, heresy, really, I think that's at the middle of all this, that in some way God needs to be changed because God needs to go from being Infinitely angry to infinitely satisfied. Well, that right there is already hugely prob- problematic. Unless I'm just like grossly reducing and caricaturizing the doctrine. It seems to me that it's like, man, that doesn't even make sense. You mean that the you mean that the perfect God in some way has to change, and I guess at one point he's this, and then he becomes that or whatever. But obviously, the problem is with us. We're the ones who need to change.
1: Seems like, and that th- this idea that. Matt is hitting upon in Calvinism predestination it's also here in the early verses of Ephesians and so what what he's just described is well Christ is the predestined one that God has predestined this is his plan from before the foundation of the world and his plan is summed up in Christ so there's no change in who God is and what God is doing and so in this understanding sin does not play the primary role that it does in a lot of theology that sin you know the whole point of christ coming and not to in any way do away with that or under underdo it but uh the picture here is that christ is completing creation so that creation continues through christ you want to think of it as a, a a recreation the Uh, He is the second Adam. And the way that Paul is talking and the way the early church fathers talk, yeah, but that predestined or pre-marked out plan of creation, that is the second Adam, precedes the first Adam in the plan of God. So that we make sense of creation, not on its own, but we make sense of creation in the world on the basis of Christ. You know, if you've been exposed to apologetics and all that what people are often doing in apologetics they're imagining that just on the basis of creation that creation has an integrity of its own you know kind of nature versus grace that here is the idea and nature exists as an independent uh kind of thing oh we've also done away with that in this explanation first the opening of this book is doing a lot of work for us and that it's shifting up the whole ground of our theology, at least as we may have received it in a a Reformed understanding. Well,
2: I just wanted to comment on what Matt said about penal substitution. One of the things that got me, you know, reading different authors and listening to you or whatever, it seems like another way to say what Matt was saying, and and maybe this is uh, just a little simpler or whatever, but penal substitution really puts God in a position like Matt said, where he has to change. But it's not only that, and it's God is is on both sides of the equation. Like he's the one sort of creating the problem because of his anger that has to be appeased. And then he appeases it. And and you know, that whole legal fiction shows up that, that we just got to do something to make this go away, as opposed to him really saving us from a substantial opponent like sin and death, something that is substantial and has um you know it's it's not some fiction that we're being saved from it's a it's a legitimate enemy and he's always in the position of trying to save us from that not trying to save us from himself that's it
1: and there's a whole history to why this you know where does this strange thing come from and you know that the it, it does develop in a kind of constantinian shift and uh, you know coming through anselm and so it's it's not like the reformers invented this whole cloth. But I think a correct reading of a book like Ephesians and putting you know putting Ephesians front and center is is a corrective uh, to, to that notion. One of the things or there, there's four reasons that people would put Ephesians. They'd say, well, uh, this can't be Pauline and it can't, you know, if it, it must be from a later period and somebody has gathered up Paul some random thoughts from Paul and what they're going to find the, the kind of the accusations against Ephesians I'm going to use as saying yeah these accusations are exactly right but not for also recentering our understanding of Paul That what we're going to encounter in Ephesians is a, a heavy focus on the church on ecclesiology you know the the body of christ first of all that's not right i think it does accord with other letters in paul but in ephesians the church occupies uh the center of attention now this can be said wrong i think that it's also true that christ is jesus christ appears right points out in nearly every section of ephesians nearly every verse So, it's not Jesus Christ over against the church or anything like that. One of the shifts we have to make is in in our understanding of the role of the corporate body. You know, how are we saved? Well, in in the understanding of Ephesians, we're saved through this, through the body of Christ. It's a corporate salvation. Number two, many people say that Ephesians is centered on a realized eschatology rather than on a future understanding again i think that that is correct uh that ephesians depicts that we are seated at the right hand of god you know this first opening the opening it, it continually talks about in the present tense of what we have received now this is not to do away with the future realization this understanding of a realized eschatology we might refer to as an apocalyptic understanding that is that the end times and what you know what is meant by end times well that just means the inauguration of god's kingdom on earth Uh, the picture is that it's begun now so that we're in the final stage of history and so this apocalyptic reading i think is front and center in ephesians but i think that understanding of Paul should also be front and center. Number three is the Christology. And of course, the Christology in Ephesians is that the focus is on resurrection, exaltation, and ascension, and cosmic lordship, and headship. Again, we may have missed that because of the focus on, we may focus on the cross. It's not that the cross is absent in Ephesians. But in T. Wright's point, I think it's legitimate. Probably more than the cross in the first century, the sign of the church, you know, they probably didn't have crosses anywhere, but the people, the church, was the sign of, of Christ and Christianity. So that we can say this that through the church, the incarnation of Christ continues. And then that's the, the fourth thing. The, the author emphasizes. Christ's death by proclaiming to the recipients his preeminence of kingship. He reigns, he rules, he he is over the spiritual powers, uh, over the church, that we are co-rulers with Christ in the heavenly realms. We are members of one unified body, that we can resist the demonic powers. I think this is the Christus Victor. To my mind, the two are interconnected, cosmic uh redemption and christus victor i think are of one piece recapitulation summing up the summing up of all things and and the picture is that things are recapitulated of necessity they're undone or the evil is undone and and there's the new adam i'll add one more here and that's soteriology in uh, uh, uh the doctrine of salvation you know in, in ephesians paul just talks about good works uh, Paul has no hesitation about talking about good works. Now, th- this is a confusion. I, uh, I'll, I'll come to it and explain it. Part of this opening lecture, I just kind of wanted to familiarize you with uh, several shifts that have occurred. One of the, one of the things I did last time, I, I'll, I'll mention this, that if you had to just take, you know, what's the, the difference of putting Ephesians as a peripheral book and putting it front and center, it's almost the difference that you get between Origen and Augustine, and I think that's no accident, because Origen of course thought Ephesians was front and center, and his theology is built upon Ephesians. Augustine is the one who is going to give us the doctrine of original sin, he's going to give us the notion of an infernalism, an eternal torturous hell, uh, that it becomes prominent, He is going to focus on a a dualism. He's very much taken in his own estimate, he says, you know, in his own critique of himself, he says, I was too much taken with Greek philosophical thought. None of this is true of Origen. That Origen then is, in in a sense, I think the, the theology of Origen is explained because of his focus on Ephesians. So what we get, I don't know if you're familiar, that, you know, Origen is condemned by the Fifth Ecumenical Council. Augustine, of course, is much later, but Augustine's part of that in that (coughs) Augustine is dealing with Pelagius and Pelagianism, and, you know, Pelagianism is the focus on, uh, I think, an improper focus or a misunderstood focus. But clearly, Origen did believe in free will and that Pelagius is holding to that. And, of course, when Origin is condemned by the Fifth Ecumenical Council, we're going to lose, you know, what we lose, it could be debated, but we're going to, certainly, I think this is part of the unfolding problem, that we're going to, to, in some way, the theology of the early church is gradually going to slip away. And the other thing is that, of course, in Augustine, Augustine is passing through Manichaeanism, you know, the whole idea of a dualism, And so all of his life he's struggling with the problem of, you know, what is the role of evil. I think he comes up with a definition of privation that is, philosophically at least, it's okay. But what he's doing at the same time, you know, a a focus in the book of Ephesians is on the principalities and powers. Uh, But Augustine is going to attribute evil not to the power of the devil or darkness because he dismisses that when he gets rid of his Manichaeanism and so he begins to say well all evil arises from and resides in human nature and so he talks about a, a massive damnation in terms you know that humans are just the the reservoir of this damnable evil and the good is only resides in God So this is, again, part of the division that's taking place. The problem with this, I think that later, you know, we're going to just, in a lot of Christianity today, I know this sounds funny. If you said, does Jesus defeat evil? That doesn't enter in. You know, I used to teach two classes. Matt probably took both of the classes. I I would teach a class in apologetics on the problem of evil. And the way that we traditionally approach that in an apologetics class is theology doesn't enter into it. Oh, the problem of evil, that's uh, you know, that's a philosophical, it's a theoretical problem. But do you think that Christ's confrontation with evil should figure into our understanding of the problem of evil and the resolution of the problem? Or in fact, are we just going to try to solve the problem of evil theoretically? And see, if we do that, if we say, Oh, I let me explain evil to you as calvin will do as you know uh, as people lose the sense that christ is engaging the powers well then what do you do with evil well then we talk about a soul-making theodicy you know that god is using evil as a kind of necessary means to bring the human race to maturity as if evil is part of god's plan and in fact calvin is going to talk about god is the originator of evil i mean this this becomes <laughs> i think this becomes evil itself in losing the sense that christ is engaging and defeating the powers i think we lose the a uh, 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 key element and i i know that's too strong to say you lose i don't you know everybody uh, i think that christ can christ is there with all of us no matter what our tradition i, I think that he could but, boy, we can sure put up a lot of obstacles to understanding the work of Christ. And I think this is a key one, and it's key in the book of Ephesians, because a lot of this book is about Christ's defeat of evil, of the principalities and powers, of the power of the air. And so part of the class is reading Walter Link and getting an understanding of how evil... You know, I, I philosophically, I don't have a problem with... Evil being a privation, but the problem is that really that evil seems a bit more powerful than nothing. When you sit next to the to the evil guy, you know I'm thinking of my train trips into Tokyo when I was in Japan. You know the yakuza get on the train. You really don't want to sit next to that guy. When evil, when you're confronted with evil, it seems pretty powerful, and it seems soul crushing and overwhelming. And so I think that part of what is lost in an Augustinian understanding, and ultimately just uh, becomes a total perversion in Calvinism, is this understanding that what God is doing in Christ is defeating the prince of the power of the air, is defeating evil, is overcoming the power of death. And so that's that's a kind of a key part of the class. Walter Wink, I, I think he gives us a picture of evil, that we can all understand oh yeah i know about this corporate evil i've been in situations where this corporate evil reigns as we read wink and think of a christus victor understanding what we mean by christus victor is a practical engagement with the powers and the capacity to deal with sin death and evil in a real world setting and this is the picture in the origin uh, that evil is comes from the father of lies. You know that's John eight forty four. That we in some way engage the lie. That we I don't know if you all are familiar with my book. This is a lot of what I'm doing in my book on the uh, psychoanalytic understanding, which is that may ring, that may sound strange to, you, but a lot of it is the way in which we engage evil uh, and become evil. That it's a process that it involves our own free will. That's part of what I think uh, the New Temple theology, does that ring with you? Are you all familiar? You know, the, the temple in Judaism was a microcosmos, that is, it's representative of the universe, and the picture is that God dwells in the midst of his temple. God dwells in the midst of, you know, why did he create? Well, through a temple theology, he created the world uh, as his, you know, a dwelling place fit for him and a dwelling place fit for God to meet human beings, you know, to, and that's the the whole temple theology that I'm afraid we, we often miss, again, because of a focus on sacrifice and that whole thing. We miss, well, no, actually what the temple is about is about God's inhabiting, his temple, and that's what's happening in John. You know, when Jesus comes to the temple, the Lord has come to his temple. Here is the fulfillment of prophecy. Ephesians is doing a very similar thing. You know, that's Wright's description, that there's new temple theology throughout Ephesians. I think that's right. That God is now dwelling in his temple, and we are then co-heirs, or we are reigning with him. So, the, you know, when we talk about the church, I think we, we may have a degraded understanding. But think of the church as little temples. <laughs> you know, this is where God is present, uh, that here is the temple of God. After going through this, the frame of which, you know, Douglas Campbell is, is picturing Ephesians, first of all, he's saying it's written by Paul. It's central to Paul's theology. And what Campbell does, Campbell is kind of unique in that he pictures his, in a sense, the revolutionary shifts in theology, that his own picture of Paul is a part of these shifts, that we have a new, certainly a new understanding of the atonement, but this comes with a new understanding of the frame of the New Testament. And the way that Campbell sums this up that I think gets at it, is that we move in typical Protestant understanding, and I don't mean just Protestant, this can can be across the board, from a contractual understanding, a legal understanding, to a covenantal understanding. This is part of what is meant by the new perspective on Paul, that Paul specifically has to be understood through an atonement theory based not on a contract not the penal substitution not the divine satisfaction but one based on covenant you know actually that's the whole argument of books like galatians and romans paul saying well the covenant precedes the law the covenant is is a covenant made by god so let me let me just go through these shifts i did this last time But the first one is, you know, if you had to describe what is taking place in conversion, what we often do, the way that we would picture Paul's conversion, is very much the way that we would picture Luther's conversion. You know, that Paul had a troubled conscience. He was guilty. He understood he could not keep the law. And he had these introspective struggles, and you know, people will turn to Romans 7 here, Uh, uh, and my book, by the way, focuses on Romans 7. There's a profound misreading of Romans 7, but they picture this as Paul's, you know, struggle with the law. And so what we find in Paul in this understanding is exactly what we find in Augustine and Luther. The notion of Oh, what is Christianity about? Our primary our primary problem is one of guilt, uh, uh, an agonistic struggle with sin and guilt. And then Christ relieves us of that struggle. Paul says in Romans seven, "I do not the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do." To explain what that means, it's uh, it, it is not what Luther and Calvin and what the way we're reading it, and this then gives rise to the doctrine of you know that of justification by faith and the the western notion of that and that's the that's the answer to the introspective conscience and that then becomes the lens through which we interpret christianity is that a true picture of paul's conversion Not at all, right? (laughs) You know, just turn to Philippians 3. Paul said, I kept the law without, I kept it flawlessly. I'm a Jew. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, that in every way I was righteous in regard to the law. Well, wait a minute. That just blew, you know, Philippians just does not accord, and I think that's the true biography of Paul. So he doesn't think of Judaism in terms of, oh, it, it's a failure, uh, in terms of, of, oh, the legal thing didn't did work, now I need Jesus to do what the law couldn't. It's true in Philippians, he, but what he's doing is almost bragging, and then he says, yes, but I consider all this refuge in light of the faith of the, the Messiah.
3: So if Paul St. Paul doesn't see that as the problem described in Judaism... Does, or what might he see as the problem?
1: First of all, to uh, w- one of the things that, the the next step in this is to say I think we have a misconception of what Judaism is. You know, in Judaism we have this idea that oh the Jews think that you're rece- that you're saved by works, and it's a wor- it's a faith of works righteousness, and of course most Jews don't recognize that because what the reason that Paul could be flawless in regard to the law was not because he was without sin but because the law made you know it allowed for sin and payment you know the, the sacrifice the the thing that Paul you know what if you had to describe Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus it's it has nothing to do with his guilty conscience and relief it's that on the road to Damascus he meets the Messiah He meets the promised one. Here is the fulfillment of Israel. Here is the one that we've been waiting for. And so there is a completion of Judaism, I think, in Paul's understanding. Now, Paul is going to go into a great deal of detail defining what Judaism is for us. And he's going to go back in Romans, you know, Romans chapter 4. He's arguing with, he's having this discussion in Rome what is, you know, the, the covenant with Abraham is based on faith. What faith? What, is, you know, what are the particulars of Abraham's faith? Abraham, though he was as good as dead, and Sarah, whose womb was dead, nonetheless, they believed in the promise of God. What was the promise of God? That Abraham would have a child. And that their offspring would be as abundant as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. That child for Abraham represented life. In other words, I don't, th- I don't think that there was a clear understanding of what eternal of afterlife yet in Judaism. It kind of appears, and so the way that you continue your own life is in and through your offspring. And so for and that's the way Paul explains it he says that Abraham's faith is resurrection faith that's what what's meant by covenantal gnomism, which is the next phase in this you know this is uh, we go from Christopher Stendhal to uh EP Sanders EP Sanders then talks about a kind of revised understanding of Judaism uh and this is what the the new perspective i think sometimes It's not like this is that big of a revolution. It's just recognizing, oh, that Judaism is not what Luther thought Judaism was. In other words, Luther is thinking, Judaism is like the the Roman Catholic Church. Those Roman Catholics think you're saved through works. And that's what Judaism is. And now we know we're justified by faith. So he projects onto Judaism what he sees as the primary problem
0: please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.